You're listening to the Stephen Wolfram Podcast, an exploration of thoughts and ideas from the founder and CEO of Wolfram Research, creator of Wolfram Alpha and the Wolfram Language. In this ongoing Q&A series, Stephen answers questions from his live stream audience about science and technology. This episode features discussions of radio wave emissions, the likelihood of other universes, what a hypersphere is, and other topics in physics and astronomy. Let's have a listen. Is it true that all objects, including living things, emit radio waves? Oh, that's interesting. Okay. Okay. What are radio waves? Radio waves are otherwise known as electromagnetic waves. They are the result of whenever you have um, a charge, a, a piece of an electrically charged thing, like an electron. Electron is the smallest unit of electric charge. And electric currents and wires and things are made essentially from the motion of electrons. Moving electric charges through wires makes electric currents. Whenever you move, whenever you uh, accelerate an electric charge, it will produce a radio wave. It will produce an electromagnetic wave. Now it's a very tricky thing because there are many ways to accelerate a charge. So for example, one thing you can do is by using voltage. Voltage is kind of the force with which you're pushing electrons through a wire, for example. Uh, and, and current is the number of electrons that are flowing through the wire. So as you change the voltage, you, you, you reverse the voltage, you keep reversing the voltage, you're pushing the electrons like back and forth inside an antenna. And that will cause the electrons to accelerate as they go. They're accelerating one way, then they slow down, they turn around, they accelerate the other way. Every time they accelerate, they produce electromagnetic radiation. And um, so anytime there's an accelerating charge, there's electromagnetic radiation. Um, the, uh, okay, for physicists, okay, it's, it's a, a slightly fancier story. Um, okay, uh, math fact, it's actually x dot x triple dot, rather than x double dot squared is the, is the actual um, uh, rate of radiation, which is, produces some weird effects that let's not discuss here. Um, but in any case, in a first approximation, the, um, uh, whenever there's an accelerating electric charge, it produces electromagnetic radiation. If it is being accelerated and wiggled around at a frequency of, let's say, a billion sort of wiggles per second. It will produce uh, microwaves, radio waves. Um, if it's, if it's um, wiggled a trillion times a second, it will produce visible light. If it's wiggled even much, much faster than that, it will produce x-rays. Um, but in general, anytime you sort of accelerate a charge, it will produce uh, electromagnetic radiation. Okay, the question is, um, does that mean that um, uh, there is electromagnetic radiation produced by um, uh, uh, produced in, um, um, uh, for example, in living organisms? Um, usually, the answer, I think, hmm, it's a good question. I mean, there's certainly a you know an electric eel certainly succeeds in producing um, an electric current, and it succeeds in producing electromagnetic radiation. Um, in kind of the, uh, okay, so sort of tricky fact is that there are electrons that are being whizzed around atoms. Those don't normally produce electromagnetic radiation. If you, um, uh, good question. Do, is there anything in us that in the normal state of affairs will produce electromagnetic radiation? Um, Oh yeah, 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 yeah. I'm sorry, I'm, I'm, I'm not thinking straight. Yes, um, okay. So uh, 
whenever, so the way our muscles work, um, okay, the way our nerves work, they're sending electrical signals. So a nerve, like we'll have a nerve fiber that will go, I don't know, up, you know, some part of the way up our arm, then there's a, a repeater, and then there's another nerve fiber that goes up to our brain, or it goes to our spinal cord, then goes to our brain, and so on. Those are like little wires, and they are uh, transmitting electric signals. Um, and those electric signals, usually they're in little pulses, maybe a thousand times a second. Um, and uh, the rate of, um, so for example, when you, when you touch something, the touch sensors in your fingers are producing a, a little nerve endings that produce, um, uh, that use electrochemistry. They use kind of chemical processes to produce an electric um, uh, electricity that then flows through the nerves um, and uh, then our brains um, detect that. And inside our brains, there's, um, there's lots of nerves that are sending electric signals all around. And that's kind of what our processes of thinking consist of is those electric signals and all the different interactions in the 100 billion or so neurons, uh, nerve cells in our brains. So whenever we, um, uh, whenever we sort of, uh, you know, the way our muscles work, is we have nerves that go from our brains um, and they go on our muscles. And when an electric signal comes from our brain through the nerve, um, when that electric signal um, uh, is, is applied to the muscle, there's this uh, protein called actin, which is a long filament type protein. And when, that, uh, when there's a little electric signal applied to that, it will tense up. And that's what causes our muscles to tense up. And so what happens is that um, that electric signal, so every time we are moving our, you know, as I move my arms around or whatever, you know, what's happening is an electric signal is going from my brain and it's causing some muscle. The, um, the, the electric signal goes to the actin filament in my muscle, which is then tensed up and then causes my, my arm to move. Um, so that electrical signal, uh, you can absolutely detect that. Um, you can measure... Um, uh, it's usually called MEG, um, oh gosh, what's that stand for? Um, the, uh, in any case, you can, you can measure electrical signals um, from, um, uh, from the nerves when you tense up muscles and things like this. Um, in fact, in our brains, you can measure the electrical signals in our brains. That's what EEG is doing, electroencephalography. Um, and uh, we can, you know, in our brains, normally, there's, a, there's these various rhythms. The neurons in our brains tend to, um, uh, uh, tend to sort of uh, uh, operate in a somewhat collective way. And so there's a rhythm around 9.8 uh, uh, cycles per second that is a, is a big, uh, the alpha rhythm of the brain, which is sort of a collective, uh, collective electrical effect of our neurons, which we can detect by putting little electrons on our electrodes on our, on our head. Um, and um, so that's, uh, and, and by the way, there are other electrical signals in, in humans, like the heart, for example, is a, is a muscle that's, you know, pumping blood and so on. And it is, uh, the, 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 when it contracts and so on, uh, sort of the signal to tell it to contract comes from nerves that come from the brain. Um, and they, um, and you can, uh, you, can, you can measure that. You can also measure the electrical activity associated with the actual um, uh, um, actually, you're mostly measuring in, in EKG. You're mostly measuring the actual um, uh, muscle, the effects, the electrical effects of the actual heart muscle. I think, um, 
and that again is another place where us humans produce electromagnetic effects. Um, they're they're very. I mean, you have to stick electrodes on yourself normally to be able to detect that. Um, there are uh, very sensitive. I mean, there is there are electrical signals that will be um, uh, that will be traveling through space. You know, through through um, from us humans and and for example, the magnetic analog of EEG. Um, you can effectively detect that from a distance, although you have to be in a very, uh, uh, very um, a, a place with very little electromagnetic interference. Somebody's asking, "What is plasma?" Um, and uh, okay, that one is fairly easy. Let me do that one, and I'll do one more. Um, the okay, plasma. So normally, there are three famous states of matter, phases of matter, solids, liquids, gases. There actually are other phases of matter that people don't talk about quite so much um, that, uh, that, for example, gels. I mean, for example, we are not obviously either solid, liquid, or liquid. We're kind of mushy stuff. Um, and that's kind of more like a, a gel. And that's a typical thing you get with long, complicated molecules that you don't get with um, uh, with just sort of single single uh, atom kinds of materials and things. But okay, plasmas are something different. Plasmas are what you get when you heat up uh, any material. Normally, the atoms have protons in the nucleus. And so an atom, depending on its atomic number, depending on its atomic position in the, in the periodic table, it will have some number of, of, uh, of protons. So hydrogen has one proton, helium has two protons, and so on. In the normal state of the, the atoms, the number of electrons is the same as the number of protons in the atom. So hydrogen, ordinary hydrogen has one electron, one proton. Ordinary helium, two electrons, two protons. But you can do what's called ionize these uh, substances by, if you heat them up, if you pump enough energy into them, you'll pull the electrons away from the nucleus. You'll, you'll be able to overcome the electrical forces that hold the electrons close to the nucleus, and you'll be able to tear them away, and then you'll have a, a so-called ionized um, atom, which doesn't have its full complement of electrons. And so that ionized atom um, is what you have in a plasma. That's what you have in fire, for example. It's what you have in the surface of the sun. Um, these are these are these are uh, plasmas that have um, that don't have. Uh, that have electrically charged things in them, not ordinary neutral atoms. You know, when you have chemical compounds, uh, the atoms also become uh, ions, but the ions cancel themselves out. So the whole molecule can be electrically neutral, but the individual pieces, like in a sodium chloride table, you know, ordinary salt, that's what happens. It's Na plus, Cl minus. Um, that's uh, because it's, it's acting like one of those things has an electron missing, one of those things has an, an extra electron, um, and that produces this force of attraction that kind of holds the sodium chloride together. Um, but when you heat things up, you'll get atoms that aren't electrically neutral, that have their electrons removed. And they have all kinds of weird properties. They have all kinds of um, uh, properties about um, uh, the way that they stop electromagnetic radiation. Um, they stop radio waves, things like that. Uh, kind of the most, the most famous plasma, in a sense, in the universe is the plasma that used to be throughout the universe. Back when the universe was very young, shortly after the Big Bang, the whole universe was hot enough that it was all a plasma. 
Um, and actually, it stopped being a plasma 100,000 years after the beginning of the universe. And um, so back um, at the very, very early parts of the universe, it was so hot that there weren't just ordinary hydrogen atoms. There were separate electrons and, and protons running around. And it was essentially a plasma of hydrogen gas. And um, so that meant that it was, uh, so one of the consequences of that, it was, it was kind of glowing like fire glows. And it was also, uh, you couldn't see through it like you can't see through a, a piece of fire. So the, um, uh, that was, so 100,000 years after the beginning of the universe, the universe was all a non-see-through glowing plasma. So the question is, what happened to that plasma? Okay, so this is a, okay, let me, uh, so here's a, here's a question. If you look, you know, you know that it takes light a certain time to come from, let's say, a different star or a different galaxy, like it takes light eight minutes to get from the sun, it, take light, light, it takes light four years to get from the nearest other star, Alpha Centauri, um, it'll take um, uh, two, um, uh, oh, like, uh, you know, so some other galaxy, it might take a million years for light to get to us. Um, so as we look out in the universe, we see light that started its journey towards us a really long time ago. And so one thing you might ask is, if you look out and you don't, and there's no galaxy in the way, and just look out to the edge of the universe, what do you actually see? Well, what you see is light that came to us from essentially what you're seeing is that plasma that existed 100,000 years after the beginning of the universe. Because, and it's a little bit, the geometry is a little bit complicated, but essentially the light that you see in any direction comes from the, um, uh, comes from the, the kind of, the, the, the reduced, um, uh, the, the, the kind of cooled down, longer wavelength uh, uh, version of light that started from the plasma that existed 100,000 years after the universe began. So in every direction that we look out in, 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 in the universe, we see the kind of this thing that's called the cosmic microwave background. It, it started off as visible light, but because of the expansion of the universe, it's now turned into microwave radio waves. Um, and we see in every direction um, in the universe, we will see that, that, um, uh, um, that, that um, radio signal. And actually what happened, that was originally discovered in 1964, I think, by a couple of people at um, uh, Bell Labs, the company uh, that operated the, the US phone system, the precursor of AT&T. Um, the, uh, they, um, uh, they were using satellites and things like this, early communication satellites, and they wanted to get, they were, they were measuring um, the uh, uh, radio emissions and they wanted to get really uh, uh, sort of low noise radio emissions from their satellites. They were measuring, you know, how much, uh, you know, could they, uh, how, how, how well could they sort of listen to the radio signals from the satellites. And they were very frustrated because there was a background. There was a radio noise at a very low intensity radio noise at this very specific thing that corresponds to a temperature of, um, uh, about um, th uh, three degrees above absolute zero. Um, and uh, that they were sort of very frustrated. They just couldn't get rid of that radio noise. And eventually it was realized that actually that radio noise is just a feature of the universe. It comes from, it is the sign of the, of the it's the, the sort of signature of the Big Bang 
um, and it's what we what we detect from that. So that was some. Uh, uh, now I'm forgetting what what question I'm even answering here. Gosh, that was terrible. Oh, I was talking about plasmas. Yeah, I was saying that that's the plasma that um, uh, the plasma from the early universe. The sort of last vestige of that plasma is the cosmic microwave background. What's the likelihood that there's another universe exactly like ours out there? That's a very interesting question. Um, it's, it's hard for us to know. Um, let me tell you something that really has surprised me. So let's imagine that we know the exact laws of physics, the exact rules that determine how our universe works. Okay? So we know these exact rules. We can, uh, you know, then we've solved the sort of fundamental theory of physics. We know the rules for the universe. We can say this is how our universe works. Anything we want to work out about our universe, if we had a big enough computer, and big enough might mean a computer bigger than our universe, which means we're out of luck because we don't, we, you know, the best we can do is use a computer that's in our universe. So we wouldn't actually be able to work out what our universe will do, but at least in principle, we would be able to work out what our universe would do if we had a big enough computer, even though we couldn't actually have that the computer that big. But so if we know the rule for the universe, then we can in principle work out everything about our universe. So then the immediate question is, okay, we know the rule for the universe. And actually I'm, I'm galloping along, getting close to being able to find that rule. And um, the, uh, uh, okay, so we know, that, let's say we know the rule and we you know, hold it in our hands, we put it up on our computer screen, here's the rule. You know, it's some particular mathematical-like thing. It's the rule for our universe. So the next question we'd ask is, okay, why did we get this rule? Why were we assigned? Why was our universe assigned this rule? I mean, there might be an infinite number of other possible rules. Why did we get this rule and not another rule? Okay. And I thought that question would be unanswerable. That is, I thought that there would be no scientific answer to that question. Um, but I just had this sneaking suspicion that there might be a scientific answer to that question. Okay, and here's roughly how it works. And, and it turns out it looks like there is an answer. Um, the, um, here's the thing. If you are an observer, a, a creature, an organism, a, a, a brain, whatever, in a universe, you are observing that universe, but the rules the laws of physics that are governing how your brain works are the exact same laws as the laws that are governing how the universe that you're, you're observing works. So there's this kind of funny interplay between you as the observer of the universe being governed by certain rules and the universe that you're observing being governed by the same rules. And so I just had this sneaking suspicion that it might be the case that essentially every universe, every possible set of rules to an observer who operates according to the same set of rules will in a sense look the same. So if you were outside the universe and you didn't operate according to the rules of the universe, you would say, oh, this universe works such and such a way. But if you're embedded in that universe, you might say of two different universes, two universes with different rules. You might say, oh, those universes work differently. I can see that from the outside. But if you're embedded inside that universe, operating yourself according to the rules of that universe, you don't get to see that. You can't tell. And actually, it's, it's for physics types, it's, it's similar to the way relativistic invariance works. And the, the independence of, uh, I can talk about relativity some other time. Um, but um, uh, in any case, so the surprise thing that I figured out about a month ago, actually, is um, 
that it really looks like uh, we're it. There's only one, uh, in other words, all these different possible rules that you might use to describe the universe are all to an observer within that universe, all in a sense look the same. So it turns out there's, there's a bunch of footnotes to this, there's a bunch more complexity to, to exactly how this works. But in some sense, every universe that works according to rules that are even vaguely like the rules of our universe is equivalent to an observer in that universe to the exact same universe. So to my surprise, I think there's a scientific argument that says there's only one universe. Now, to say there's an exact copy of our universe, yes, we can't tell that. We can't tell the difference between those things. But to say, oh, there are different universes and they operate according to slightly different rules, I think that's not, that won't work. Okay, we have a question from John, age 14 here, about what is a hypersphere? The basic answer to what is a hypersphere, it's a sphere in more than three dimensions. So, you know, we live, we think, in three-dimensional space. Um, what does that mean? It means we can go uh, forwards, sideways, up, you know, forwards, backwards, left, right, up, down. Those are three separate uh, directions that we can go in in space. We can't, if we lived, um, if, if we were kind of um, little creatures that live just on, on the surface of a, uh, on just on a plane on the surface, we might only be able to go in two dimensions. We would only be able to go forwards, backwards, left, right. We wouldn't be able to go up, down. We just, we just, we couldn't get out of our plane, so to speak. But um, so a question is, what happens if we, um, uh, is it possible to have more than three dimensions? So in our universe right now, so far as we know, we basically live in a three-dimensional universe. Okay, what does it mean to be three-dimensional, four-dimensional, whatever? So here's, here's a way that I've found that's quite useful to, um, to kind of see this. In the square, every, from every uh, corner of the square, there are two neighboring corners, two neighboring points. Let's do the corresponding thing in 3D. So if we do, um, so this is a two-dimensional uh, square. In three dimensions, we have a cube. And in that three-dimensional cube, the, if we look at each corner of that three-dimensional cube, it is adjacent to three other corners. So that are in the, like, often these directions are called the X direction, Y direction, Z direction. Up, down, left, right, uh, um, in, out, for example. Um, okay, so the obvious thing we might do is to say, great, that's a three-dimensional, uh, well, this would be a three-dimensional cube. What would a hypercube look like? What would a four-dimensional cube look like? And so we can just say, show us this uh, uh, thing that connects where we're, where we're making something in which every corner effectively is connected not to three other corners, but to four other corners, okay? So this object is, uh, has the structure of a four-dimensional cube often called a hypercube or sometimes called the tesseract. Um, this thing has the structure of a four-dimensional cube and we can have a five-dimensional hypercube where every corner has five corners adjacent to it and so on. Um, so that's, that's how we would invent these objects which we can think about mathematically in, uh, in more than three dimensions. Now, 
in the case of a um, uh, of a sphere, a sphere normally is um, is something that exists in three dimensions. A sphere is is the set of points you get where you start look at start from the center, and then you just say what are all the points that are the same distance away from the center? Okay, so like a sphere of of radius one would just be a thing where you're looking at every point in three dimensional space that is a distance one away from the center. You can do exactly the same thing in four dimensions. You can say, make me something where every, I'm looking at all the points that are, let's say distance one away from the center, but not in three dimensions with three coordinates, but instead in four dimensions. So that's what a hypersphere is. Okay, there is a formula for the volume of a d-dimensional uh, sphere, um, which comes out in terms of factorials. Um, it's, uh, it's always r to the d, but it's multiplied by the factor that will be four-thirds pi in the case of three dimensions and is pi squared over two in four dimensions is a different factor in different numbers of dimensions. And um, actually, uh, let's see how we can compute this. Well, I could go look it up because I know at a, at a mathematical level, it's all, all fine to make, make hypospheres. We don't know if one can make those physically in the universe. Um, we don't know if, for example, the whole universe um, could be, uh, our three dimensions could be uh, uh, wrapped around a higher dimensional sphere, potentially. You've been listening to the Stephen Wolfram Podcast. You can view the full Q&A series on the Wolfram Research YouTube channel. For more information on Stephen's publications, live coding streams, and this podcast, visit stephenwolfram.com.